Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Well, welcome. It is good to see all of you, and I want to give a little explanation for those that are watching online because I, as you might imagine, get a a few emails occasionally about uh, people watch online and they go, oh, they're not socially separated because there's a whole bunch of you sitting next to each other. Those are called families, and uh, so if you're here and you're in a family group, of course you can sit together, and that is why we have about 40 ushers and uh, people to help you find seats, and so I appreciate uh, all of you bearing with, with us during this time, and so glad that you're here. Uh, it is a joy to be able to meet together and to do church uh, out here underneath uh, the Lord's amazing sky, amen, that he created, and so let's just rejoice in what we can do and not in what we can't. Um, again, you're welcome to wear hats. You know, you're not going to perish eternally if you have a hat between you and the Lord. I'm pretty sure he can hear your prayer through it. Um, if you want to bring an umbrella and you're sitting out here in the middle, please do that. Uh, we're, we want you to be comfortable. Bring your hydro flasks and all those kind of things. That's the reason that we moved uh, first service uh, to 8 o'clock. It was considerably cooler then, so it was actually quite full as well. So if we need to make some further adjustments, we will. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, as we continue our journey along with Jesus, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He is in the very next passage that we'll cover, uh, going to show up at Mary and Martha's house in Bethany. Uh, He'll be just two miles from Jerusalem at that point in time. This is the final study when he's still down in the Jordan River Valley and he's making the the way up the road to Jericho and he's going to give us a little bit of a lesson about what we call the story of the Good Samaritan in our passage today. But I think there's another message for us uh, that I believe the Lord wants us to hear as a church that's found in this passage because this really is the calm before the storm. This is the very brief moment that Jesus has a little bit of calm before the fires of hell are going to be unleashed on him and he will finally give his life a ransom for us. And in this little bit of time, this calm, Jesus says a number of things that I think are very important for us as a church. Because I think sometimes we, we mistake the fact that there is calm It's as if the devil no longer is at work in this world. And probably some of you have figured out during this time that uh, the devil is very much alive in this world, that he's still seeking to destroy, he still wants to kill. Uh, His mission is unchanged in that sense. And Jesus knew this, and he's going to let us know exactly uh, his perspective on things. And I think we need to look at this from the perspective of these 70 disciples that got sent out that we saw in the last passage that we covered last Sunday that are now going to come back. 
And they've had success. The Lord has used them in that sense in a mighty way. And they're coming back and they're, uh, as you might imagine, excited about what God did through them. But Jesus is going to instruct them. It's like, guys, the war's not over. It's not finished. There's work to be done. And so the Lord is going to take a little bit of a calm before the storm. Would you join me? Let's pray uh, for our time in the word and for the world that we are actively seeking to tell about Jesus. Father, we pray. Lord, I pray for those that are maybe sitting here right now that are struggling through perhaps joblessness or um, perhaps, Father, they're just completely overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. Maybe it's parents who were so used to having their children in school, but School is not going to start, and they're trying to figure out how to balance a job and homeschooling and digital learning. Lord, we pray for the business owners and the professional people that are uh, listening in right now, that are in our midst, that are just going through such difficult times. Lord, the war is raging. We pray for our ongoing battle with racial injustice and, Father, the inequities that still exist in our society and the rioting and the violence, all the things that have risen up, Lord, to make this time even more difficult. We pray for those that are suffering through that injustice. We ask that you would bring peace. Lord, we pray for those that are searching for a vaccine to this virus. Lord, we pray that you would anoint a scientist, a doctor's mind directly from heaven to give us a vaccine that will work to kill this virus, Lord, to, to do the work that's necessary to free us from this bondage that we're under. We pray for those that are researching the therapeutics that would even fight the symptoms and, and make uh, this sickness more tolerable and less lethal. We ask that you would anoint them. We pray for the teachers and administrators in our school districts. And Lord, our governor, as he attempts to make sense of this, Father, we don't stand in judgment of the people who are trying to make difficult decisions. We stand uh, as a help, Lord. We, we are beseeching the King of heaven uh, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so, Lord of heaven, would you anoint your word and cause us to hear from it? Bless us, Lord, as we study. That's what we've come to do, is to hear your voice through your word. Please speak to us as your church. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. It's funny how we can be in eternal bliss one day and knock to our knees the next, amen? Anybody have that happen recently? That's kind of like our, our cycle, isn't it? Verse 17, and now we have this very specific situation that is going to come up that many of you already know. But before we get there, and then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You can see the joy. It's like, man, we went out, we preached the gospel, we preached the kingdom, and, and we had tremendous success. And then reality struck. And the he there in verse 18 said to them, you might want to meter that joy a little bit. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Anybody know where he fell to? Fell to earth, didn't he? Yeah, Jesus is basically saying that 
Now, it's great that you had success. It's wonderful that you preached the gospel. It's a glorious thing that people got saved, that uh, you were able to cast out demons. You did all these things, but the battle's not over. There's still a very real enemy who absolutely hates you, hates everything, hates me, hates everything that you stand for. And he says, behold, in verse 19, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. He's saying, look, you, you definitely have the power that's necessary to be victorious. Nevertheless, notice verse 20. He says, look, this is how strong you are in me. This is how powerful you are because you're a disciple. This is what's at your disposal as a child of God. You have the victory. The battle's been won. You can do all these things, but nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Why would Jesus say that? That the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Amen? You, you see, my source of rejoicing is not my daily victories. It's not circumstantial. If there's anything I've figured out during this time, trying to pastor a church through this time of pandemic, is that there are all kinds of problems, there are not a whole lot of real solutions, and everybody has an opinion. I figured that out. That does not make me brilliant. That just means that I talk to a lot of people. And I can tell you, there are not a lot of solutions. And the moment I think we've got something fixed, something solved, something done, pleasing a group of people, or taking care of this situation, or doing something that would somehow minister to that need or this group, the very next breath, there's something else to handle. There's something else that God ha has brought our way that we look at, man, I don't have a solution for that. I don't know what we're going to do about that. Last Sunday, as we met out here for the first time, I'm thinking, you know, people will be really excited about this. Well, most people were really excited about it except for the people who watched online and saw you guys sitting close to each other, and they sent me little notes, you're not socially separated. Said, well, I've been married to the same woman for 43 years, of course I'm not going to socially separate from her. And we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are married to each other, all sitting next to each other. You know, it, it's like people find something else. The devil will find something else. You're, you're going to fight the good fight. Notice Jesus' encouragement. It isn't that you're going to win every battle. He, he, he doesn't say, well, praise God, now go do that again. Though that is the inference, that's what he wants us to do, is go and preach the gospel of the kingdom and see people saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the mission, right? But he says, here's what you should really rejoice in, that you're saved, that you're going to heaven, church. That's what we rejoice in. 
my source of rejoicing every moment of every day can be that truth. That truth is a source of constant rejoicing for us. The ups and downs of the Christian walk, sometimes that's not very filled with rejoicing, amen? I don't know if any of you actually struggle. Maybe some of you today, your life isn't going exactly as you thought it would in 2020. Perhaps you're going through something as a family that you're saying, why didn't God prevent this from happening? But every moment of every day you can rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You see, because when this earthly life is over, there's a heavenly life that's just beginning. And so Jesus says, don't get too hung up on what's going on here on earth. This is just a calm. Maybe you're going through one of those periods right now to where you're, you're really taking a, a second look at your life. I know Connie and I have talked about this a lot. I mean, we're so grateful that we have a home to live in, that we have food in our cupboard, that we, have, we actually have a backyard. Don't get jealous. We, we have a backyard. Not everybody has a backyard in Los Angeles. Some people don't have a front yard either. Some, some people have a porch. Some people don't have either of those two things. It's just like, Lord, you blessed us. We have a backyard. But you know what? The real source of rejoicing is not the fact that we have a backyard. It's that I have a heavenly father that loves me and wants me to be with him for eternity in his heaven. So nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, not that you cast out demons, not that you have power over serpents and scorpions, not that you can take care of the things the enemy throws at you, but you rejoice that one day you're going to heaven. Your names are written there. For in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit, verse 21, and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, master of everything, Lord of heaven, master of heaven, master of earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. As I've shared with you before, the disciples, they were not the brightest bunch. It wasn't like Jesus went around and said, you know, I need anybody that's got a PhD in theology, I'd like to talk to you after service. The disciples were fishermen, tax collectors. They, they weren't the sharpest tools. You look at these guys and you're thinking, God picked them. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, God still uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Exactly as the Apostle Paul said. And Jesus goes on, he says, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. For no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Now he's not making a statement that you can't know Jesus. He's saying intimately, in finite detail, in absolutely everything, no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal it to him. What he's saying is it's only my Father and I that know everything about us. I don't know everything about God. I don't know everything about the Lord Jesus. 
God graciously has revealed a lot of truth to me about who he is and who Jesus, our Savior, is and who God's Son is. Yes, we have the Word and we can study that, but there's only two people in the whole universe, three if you want to include the Holy Spirit, who is also a person. It is only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit that know everything about God. All the rest of us are functioning at a deficit, folks. We're going to come up every once in a while with the wrong conclusion. We're going to think of the wrong thing. I, I was joking with first service. Any of you who have been married for very long, have you figured out that you don't know everything about your spouse? Connie and I have been married for 43 years, and I'm still learning things about her. There are things that's like, I didn't know that that's how you thought about that. So even in that most wonderful and intimate relationship of husband and wife, even after going on five decades of marriage, we're still trying to figure something about, about another human being. Can you imagine how much of a deficit we function under when you're trying to know God, who is infinite? And so God's reminding us through Jesus, look, you're all still learning things about me. You're all still trying to figure this walk with the Lord out a little bit. So don't be so hard on one another. And then he turned to his disciples and said privately, so Jesus kind of turns away from the group and to the disciples themselves, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. You ever thought what it'd be like to have been one of the original disciples, the apostles, and walk with Jesus? You ever, you ever thought of that for just a minute? You know, one of the beauties of going to, to Israel, especially going to Jerusalem, and you're, you're walking around the, the southern edge of, of, the, of the retaining wall that was built by Herod the king to retain the Temple Mount, and you're literally walking on the exact same pavement stones as Jesus. He walked on those rocks right there. And you get to the southern steps and you sit down. Jesus taught the disciples right here on these stones. It's pretty awesome. But you know what? I'm not going to heaven because I walked on the same rocks that Jesus walked on. I'm not going to heaven because I sat on the same steps. I got to teach right where Jesus taught. I'm going to heaven because Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross for my sin and has forgiven my sin because I've invited him into my life to be my Savior and my Lord, and that's the only reason I'm going to heaven. So Jesus is reminding us, says, look, blessed are those who've seen these things that you've seen, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired, desired to see what you see and have not seen it, to hear what you hear and have not heard it. And so Jesus is really reminding us, look, if, imagine this for a second. We just studied what we traditionally call the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, goes on top of a mountain, and who shows up? Moses and Elijah. 
Now, a little thing that you might want to remember, Elijah came down from heaven, amen? Because in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah was taken directly to heaven. But where did Moses come from? He came from the grave. He came from Sheol, same place that Abraham was resting before Jesus went and died on Calvary's cross and paid the price for his sin. So here comes Moses out of the grave. And here comes Elijah from heaven. Anybody here think that maybe they wanted to hang out with Jesus for a while while they were here? Here they go. It's like, oh man, heaven's great, but could I hang out with you, Jesus? And Moses is going, you know, Sheol's great, but could I hang out with you, Jesus? Moses goes back to Sheol and talks to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and says, it was awesome. I was on the mountain with Jesus. Church, the Lord in his graciousness reveals things to us. But none of us have seen everything. None of us know everything. We we are all still waiting for that final revelation when we get to heaven and go, man, that is the Lord. There's Jesus. And so Elijah goes back to heaven and Moses back to Sheol. And Jesus is saying, don't confuse here and there. Don't confuse the two places. If you never get to go to Israel, I hope every person watching, every person sitting, one day gets that opportunity. It's amazing. It's awesome. And I pray you do. But if you don't ever get to go, let me just tell you what comes later. You're going to get to see the new Jerusalem descend from heaven down to this earth. And so you're going to go, well, even Moses didn't see that. Even David didn't see that. That is something completely new. And so Jesus is saying to you and saying to me today, let's not focus here on earth. Let's focus on heaven. Because here on earth, you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to hear great things from the Lord. You're going to experience difficulties from the enemy and everything in between. We are all supposed to be rejoicing because one day we're heading to heaven. And so Jesus now is about to enter into a time of criticism. And before he even gets to Jerusalem, before he meets the scribes, before he meets the Pharisees, before he meets the Sadducees, before he's arrested by Pilate's Roman soldiers, before any of those things happen, he is already in the crossfire of the enemy. He's he's already going to be attacked. And so Jesus begins by getting our eyes focused on heaven, and then he deals with what I would say the first part of the criticism that's going to come his way, which is the scholastic approach or the academic approach, the higher criticism, people that would say, well, you know, you you don't really need Jesus. You just need religion. You don't really need a personal relationship. You need some religious right. You need to follow some religious rules. 
You don't really need a relationship. You, you just need to be religious. There's a way to work it out yourself. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. So we know the motivation, we're told. He's trying to test Jesus. And when we see the word lawyer, we think of, you know, sweet James or Jacob and Ronnie or somebody. And this is not to disparage attorneys, okay? This is a very different situation. And in fact, during this day and time, if someone was a lawyer in this context, they were also likely a priest. They were most assuredly a Levite. They were very learned because at this day and time, as far as the Jewish people were concerned, they had a theocracy. They were governed by God. That's actually what Israel means. And so if there's a lawyer, he's a religious lawyer. He's actually well-versed in the Bible as they would have it then, which would have been the Old Testament, the Torah, the first five books, the Tanakh, the wisdom writings, the prophets. And so this man is now going to come to Jesus and go, look, we, we've got this system of religion that we've now had in place for about 1,500 years. And it's very detailed. And in fact, our father Moses got it while he was on the mountain. He was given the first 10 commands. And then he wrote the book of Deuteronomy. We have this elaborate temple and all these things that we've been doing. And I know everything about this religion. I am an attorney in religious things. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, little platitude, recognizing who Jesus is, he's got a following, so he's a teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He asked Jesus a very simple question, but the motivation behind the question is not genuine. He's trying to put Jesus on the spot. He's saying, look, you have these guys following you around, and somehow they've figured out that, that you're something different. You're something actually better. You actually are providing a way for people to actually know God. And so you claim to be a teacher. You teach the law. We've heard that of you. And he said to him, Jesus does. Well, what's written in the law? What is your reading of it? He turns his question back on him. Like any good attorney actually would. And Jesus being uh, our advocate in heaven knowing all things, knows exactly why this question is asked of him, speaks back to this religious lawyer, and he says, so he answered and said, so here comes the, the attorney's rebuttal. He's going to make now his case. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And look what Jesus says. Bingo! You got it. And Jesus said to him, you've answered rightly, do this, and you will live. You'll have eternal life. What was Jesus doing with him? He was making the man question whether religion could ever save anybody. And here's why we know this. Jesus was basically saying to them, 
And I'll just ask you the same question. You're all sitting here and we're family, right? I'd like for anyone here today who has from the day you were born to this very day, who has perfectly loved the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, and in case you think you can pass that test, and your neighbor as yourself, could you please raise your hand so we can meet Jesus? <laughs> you understand what he's saying? He's, he's not saying you kind of, sort of did it. He's not saying, well, get close and that's good enough. The, the attorney's asking, what must I do to be saved? How do I get eternal life? And he quotes to Jesus the first and greatest command. And Jesus says, yeah, you got it right. Now, did you do it? How perfect are you at loving the Lord your God 100% of the time with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? And then just in case you think you get that part, because you're really, really, really holy, and oh, by the way, agapeo, without reservation, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And do it perfectly. You think any of us passed that test? Let me just be the first to state, I don't. I don't. Now I try and love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. But I got some neighbors I don't even like. I got a few of them It's like, I don't know where you came from, but it's obviously not this planet. And I'm just admitting to you that I think all of us can say there are some people that rub us the wrong way. And you know why I know that about all of you? Because you send me emails. <laughs> you don't actually like me. It's like Jesus is Jesus, but that's not you, Pastor Jeff. No, again, I'm not picking on anybody. Because we all have those areas in our life to where, you know, some people are easy to like. Some people are easy to love. And some people, nah, no, sorry, it's not happening. So what do you think happened with the attorney? He's sitting there going, hmm. Okay, now what do I say? How do I respond to this? What is it? What is it that I, I now want to do? Well, he's going to answer and this is one of my favorite exchanges between Jesus and anyone in the entire Bible. I love this one. You want to know why? Because this is exactly how my brain works. And I mean exactly how my brain works. Because I'm one of those people that I'm usually thinking about three or four steps ahead of every question, trying to figure out what the next question is going to be and formulating my answer. And sometimes it leads me to not be a very good listener. Now, I've gotten better as I've gotten older. But this is one of those areas in my own personal life where I'm prone to go, I already know where this is going. I've heard this exact question 4,000 times. I, I know which proof text you're going to use to try and prove to me what you're going to say. A little confession here. 
basically, he's saying, well, what do I have to do to acquire eternal life? And Jesus gives the scriptures back to him. He realizes, ooh, I'm falling short of that. I don't know what else I can say. So he asks him another question. And this I love, because this is the real question. But he, who's that? The lawyer. The really religious guy. Wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? Who indeed is your neighbor? Do you realize what's hidden in that question? Not everybody's my neighbor. I don't have to like everybody. I don't have to love everybody. Not everybody is my neighbor. My neighbors are who I want to be my neighbors. (laughs) That's not how it works, is it, church? Because the Bible plainly teaches that every last one of us, far beyond being neighbors, we're actually one another's brothers and sisters. That we're all related one to another. We're actually in the same family. We're not just neighbors. So Jesus is actually now going to address this second question in such a way that this man comes to the right conclusion and understands exactly how hopeless his situation. If he thinks there's anything he could have ever done to get to heaven by his own works, Jesus is saying, "Mm, no, that's not going to work out well for you. Wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered back and said, and this is a very familiar story to you. It's the story of the good Samaritan. Now, it would be helpful for you to understand very clearly and very concisely who the Samaritans were. So you understand that this man is a ritually holy man who undoubtedly has just gone to a mikveh, who's washed himself and cleansed himself. He considers himself ritually clean. He, like the apostle Paul, would declare that I have kept the law from my youth. There's nothing unrighteous about me. And the fact that I am who I am is the reason that I have a relationship with God. And so I am good to go. But the Samaritans, as far as the Jewish people were concerned, were not just outcasts, they were literally half Jewish. They were disparaged as being half-breeds. And why this would be important was the whole northern kingdom, which we are studying in the book of Isaiah, we studied in the book of Hosea, was comprised of Ten tribes. Those ten tribes the Assyrian army took captive. What the Assyrian army was famous for doing when it took anyone captive, it killed all of the men, all of the young boys, and then raped the women. They did this so that the Assyrian blood would be in the community. And so Samaritans were half Assyrian and half Jewish. They were hated. They were despised. They were the evidence of defeat. And they were so outcast that the Samaritans had to build their own temple, even though they were half Jewish, on the top of Mount Gerizim, so that they could even worship because they were not even welcome in the temple in Jerusalem, even though they were half Jewish. 
even though they declared their allegiance to Yahweh. And so Jesus tells this man who his neighbor is. And Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's on the Jericho Road, about 35 miles long, descends down through a number of very winding canyons, through an extremely desolate area, east of Jerusalem, ends up in the oasis city of Jericho, which is where the Levites normally lived when they were not on duty in the temple, and fell among thieves because of the winding nature of the road, because of the canyons, because of the distance traveled that you had. It took two days at a minimum. Uh, And because people were on it, thieves preyed on people who traveled between those two places. Very often, the Levites, those would be carrying money. They've come from the temple. They've been paid. It was a good place to do some business. Fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing and wounded him, departing, leaving him half dead. And now by chance, a certain priest, circle that, so you've got a lawyer who also is likely a priest, certainly very religious, maybe he's a member as Paul was of the Sanhedrin, perhaps he's actually in the religious court that governs the nation Israel. A certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You see, this is what religion does when faced with relationship. Religion says, oh no, I'm not going to get dirty. Religion says, no, I'm not going to meet out in a parking lot. Religion says, this is how we do this, and we always do this this way. This is how religion reacts all the time. That's not how we do it. And he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, little subtlety here, So the priests would minister in the temple. They were the ones that were responsible for actually making the sacrifices, attending to the various instruments that were in the temple courtyard. But the Levites served in the court. So they might come and take your offering and take it to the priest. But they themselves were also very religious. They were of the tribe of Levi. And so they attended to the things of the Lord. Kind of like we would make a differentiation between a pastor and maybe a deacon or an elder. But these are all very religious people. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked. He even gets closer. He goes over, yep, dude's almost dead. And he passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, now you see why it's important you understand who the Samaritans actually are. A certain Samaritan, unaccepted in the temple in Jerusalem, unable to serve in the temple in Jerusalem, considered unclean by the Jewish people, hated by religion, hated by the world's oldest monotheistic religion, Judaism. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed and came where he was, and when he saw him, His heart was moved with compassion. He had compassion. He could place himself and empathize with that man and say, what would I want to have happened to me were I caught in this situation? Didn't ask how the man got there. 
Didn't ask whether he maybe he had messed up and God was angry with him. He didn't have a religious reaction. He simply had compassion. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Very expensive, by the way. This is costly to this man. He doesn't ask who he is. Doesn't ask how he got there. Doesn't ask him his spiritual history. Doesn't ask him who his family is. Doesn't ask him where he came from. Does he have an education or doesn't have an education? It didn't matter. He had compassion when he saw him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal. He went from riding in the limo to putting the other dude in the limo and walking. And brought him to an inn. Took him to the hotel. And took care of him. And that phrase is interesting. In the original Greek, it seems to be this guy acted as his nurse. He he performed all of the necessary medical procedures on the man to make sure that he was on his way to being well. He didn't pass him off. Didn't send him to someone else. Didn't just hire a doctor. He became the doctor. Said, whatever this man needs, not only will I do it, notice what it says next. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii. That was the coin that was given for a day's wages. He drops down two days' wages, gives them to the innkeeper, which would have been more than enough to sustain this man for at least a week or two, at least, and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, notice how there's no punctuation there that indicates up to and including it's not a sum. Well, I'll take care of him as long as it doesn't cost too much. I, I, I want you to be good to him unless he, you know, I, I'm only going to go so far, and then after that, you know, just let him die. He says, whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And the inference there is everything. Whatever it costs, I'll pay it. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Before you answer that question in your heart, the Bible plainly declares that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and so the man on the edge of the road is you. It's me. It's us. It's everyone. We were all dead on the side of the road. So which one of these three do you think is the right answer? Was it religion? <laughs> nope. Was it a religious right? No. Because this is a radical story of rejection. This is what religion, this is what rights, this is what rules does. And again, it doesn't mean we don't have ordinances in the church. It doesn't mean that we don't do certain things. But I'll give you a little way to understand this. I think you can most, most of you can identify with. 
And it comes from a scene that we'll get to in not too distant future when Jesus is on the cross. What does Jesus say to the thief on the cross who believes in him? You were so close to being saved. You almost get to go to heaven. But we have a real issue here. I can't baptize you. You, you, You're not going to get to go to church ever. You've never participated in a home Bible study. You don't know a single memory verse. Just like the injured man found by the Samaritan, Jesus says the same thing to the thief on the cross. Whatever you owe, I'll pay it. Whatever the debt is, it's covered. Whatever needs to be done, I'll do it. You can't save yourself. Let me save you. So Jesus says to the thief on the cross, not, man, I wish you could get baptized. It'd be a lot better for you. No, he just simply says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Amen? Did you see the correlation between these two places? Who's your neighbor? Everyone. Who did the right thing? The one who overlooked all the details of why that person was in poverty. Why that person laid on the side of the road. Why they were born in one situation versus another situation. Why they were there was not important. What was important was what was going to be done for them. That couldn't be done by them. What would be done for them that couldn't be done by them? You see, I can't save myself and you can't save yourself either. So as Jesus shows this story of rejection, what happens with the priest? Forget it. The Levite, forget it. It takes a man who nobody thinks anything of you remember what they said about Jesus? The prophet Isaiah said, there is nothing of him that we should desire him. Isn't that crazy? And yet Jesus reaches into our lives when we're the person on the side of the road and says, let me help you up. Let me bandage your wounds. Let me touch your broken places. And you're not just my neighbor, by the way. I want to call you friend. I want to adopt you into my family. You can come home with me. Do you remember what Jesus said? Don't rejoice that you can cast out demons. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Don't rejoice that you're good at religious things. Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. You see, this rejection read, read this man the riot act, basically. It's like, look, can you imagine how he felt as the priest walked by? Can you imagine how he felt when a few moments later or an hour later, we're not told the timing, when the Levite walked by? Can you imagine the joy 
when the Samaritan picked that man up out of the dirt and said, let me give you a ride. Let me, you ride on my donkey. I'll walk. Here's a place for you to stay. Let me bandage your wounds. Let me take care of your debt. Because the Samaritan didn't owe the innkeeper a cent. The man who was bandaged owed the money. But the Samaritan paid the price. Church. How many of the things that we face in our world are like this story? How many of the things that ail us as a nation are fixed if we just simply apply this principle and stop looking to religion and stop looking to rights and stop looking to legalism and stop looking to these things that we would call the rules of the church and start looking to a radical story of redemption for every single person. So you know what? You're my neighbor. I can't let that happen to you. You're my brother. I can't allow that injustice to continue. You're, I'm related to you. I'm not going to leave you in this situation. That's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? When I was dead in my trespasses and sins, offering nothing to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus said, if you'll believe in me, you'll have eternal life. He offered me exactly what Jesus started with in this story. Because if you notice, this starts with, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Anybody... Ever understood that an inheritance isn't something you earn ever? It was earned by somebody else. It's given to you as a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, lest any of us should boast. This incredible picture is this beautiful story of how no work can redeem you. No thing that you do saves you. Nothing that, that you're planning on engaging in actually has the capacity to give you eternal sonship or daughtership in heaven. It is a gift given to you by someone who sees your need and has compassion on you. That's who Jesus is. That's the story of the gospel. That's who we are as God's kids. That's who we are as the family of God. And church, I pray, and I realize that things are, are difficult for many of us. Things are hard. Some of us do feel like we're on the edge of that road. But there is a loving Savior who wants to pick you up and dust you off and bind your wounds and get you healed, and get you whole. 
and offers you a better still in than your current life would ever afford. And that is heaven. Don't miss that opportunity, church. You, you see the, the constant beating of religion, the drum of religion is do this, do this, do that, do this. Keep doing, doing, doing. The gospel says, no, it's already done. All the doing is done. All that's left is the believing and the living for the king and for the kingdom. And I pray that you're encouraged. It's like, look to heaven. Look to who you are in Christ. Look to our common brotherhood, sisterhood in the Lord. Look to making sure that every single person you meet, you look at them and say, that's my neighbor. That's my brother, that's my sister. That is someone that Jesus loves and thereby I love them. It'll change our world. It will change our world. If we live this way, it will change our world. Would you stand and we'll pray together. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, maybe you're watching online, let, let me be really clear. The, the Bible lists out a step, series of steps in, the, in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We, we call it the Romans road, but it's really three things. You can just call it ABCs. It's, I have to admit Romans 3.10 says, that I, I, look, there's not one righteous. All of us are like the man on the side of the road. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve to be the man on the edge of the road. The wages of sin, we all deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. Every one of us. I have to admit that. I have to say, Lord, that was me. Then I have to also believe that there's a solution to it. Look, the heart of Jesus is this. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. I have to believe that. That's why he went to Calvary's cross. And then ultimately, we just confess to Jesus as Lord. It's like, Lord, I want you. I don't want what I've already got. I want salvation. I want to confess with my mouth that you are Lord. I believe in your name. If you will just simply pray those ABCs, Invite the Lord into your life. Exactly as Romans 10 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So when you meet people, tell them the good news of the gospel, that even if they're on the edge of the road, they can be saved, they can be redeemed, they can be brought near, and they can be given an inheritance. Amen. Father, thank you. For this time today, I pray if there's anyone listening, either here physically or online, or will listen to this later, and they do not yet know you, that they would confess you as Lord, invite you in as Savior, that they would believe on who you are, Jesus, and that you would pick them up off that road, Lord, just as you did that man who was beaten, that man who was bruised, that woman who was on the side of the road. It could have been any of us, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for healing us. And thank you for the hope of heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people all said, Amen.
Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.